But first, we'll be heading to the USA for our Shapirouette with Bruce. Bruce, of course, is contributing editor with The Nation and exec director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. And I'm sure he'll also have some thoughts on press freedom, which we will come to. Bruce, welcome back. Always glad to be here. Bruce, this uh, week the Supreme Court will be hearing arguments about whether the Donald should be allowed to be on the Colorado primary ballot for the presidency. What are the arguments? This is a a truly astonishing and historic case. And, you know, it's interesting when it when it uh, was first filed a couple of months ago. A lot of people, including me, I have to say, thought, oh, come on. You know, yes, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution passed after the Civil War says that um, you can't run for president. You're disqualified from the ballot if you've engaged in insurrection. But uh, the, the Supreme Court's not going to pay attention to that. Um, something really interesting has happened. Um, there have been a number of key conservative legal scholars, folks from the Federalist Society, um, that leading edge of, of the legal right in the United States, and more recently, a number of profoundly influential historians of the U.S. Civil War, uh, people like Drew Faust, the president, former president of Harvard University, um, my New Haven neighbors, uh, John Fabian Witt, Yale Law School, and David Blight from Yale, all of them historians of the Civil War and Reconstruction when the 14th Amendment, and in particular something called Section 3, was added, who've gone back to that period, gone back to the political debates, and said, you know what? If you look at the wording of the amendment, if you look at the... um, Arguments in Congress when it was passed, if you look at how it was first used against folks who've been part of the Civil War, this absolutely applies. It forbids anyone who's violated an oath to the Constitution from seeking office, and that includes president. It is self-executing. It doesn't require some special trial before Congress in order for a court to find someone's an insurrectionist. And, you know, back in December, when a a group of um, residents of Colorado sued, or when the Colorado Supreme Court, rather, uh, upheld the petition from a group of residents to throw Trump off, um, none of that history was really on on the table. Um, These historians in particular— are kind of holding the conservative majority of the Supreme Court, which bear in mind includes three Trump employees, uh, appointees, I should say, not employees, uh, holding their feet to the fire by saying, you folks have always said you are textual originalists. You claim that you want to ask only what's in the law and what was the meaning of it at the time it was passed. Well, here it is. What's also interesting about this is that this particular suit in Colorado um, and several similar actions in other state courts around the country um, were brought not by liberal Democrats but by Republicans, Republicans desperate to save their party from the Donald. Um, the, the face, the name 
on the uh, case the Supreme Court is going to argue about on Thursday is Norma Anderson, who is a 91-year-old lifelong Republican, former state legislator who still carries a copy of the Constitution in her pocket. Um, this is, you know, of, the, of, of all the many legal uh, jackpots that Donald Trump is in. This is the one that, at least for now, immediately threatens his progress in getting the Republican nomination again. Now, the other side of the argument, which Trump's folks say, but also some Democrats will say too, is that, come on, this is not Democratic. Um, there has been no uh, criminal finding that he's an insurrectionist. Those cases are still pending. Absent that kind of due process, um, there's no way that you can uh, hold this. I mean, Trump, uh, Trump's lawyers actually argue that he's completely immune anyway. That's a whole other argument. But, um, you know, it's actually an open question where the Supreme Court is going to go with this. A few weeks ago, I would have said, forget it. We don't even need to waste time on late night live talking about it. Now I'm not so sure. The arguments, the textual arguments, the historical arguments are quite persuasive. How many other states will be uh, watching the outcome? Uh, 49. <laughs> uh, but actually, uh, you know, most consequentially, Maine, the Secretary of State of Maine has also found that former President Trump is an insurrectionist. Um, through leading that mob on the Capitol on January 6th and leading a protracted campaign to overturn the vote in 2020. Um, there have been state courts in other states that have considered the question and found for Trump. Uh, Michigan, uh, the Michigan court said that at least at this point, um, their legal standards would keep Trump on the ballot. One of, you know, one of the odd things is that even though elections are federal, um, in large part, they are regulated by the state. Every state gets to have its own laws for who, uh, how many signatures it takes to get on the ballot and stuff like that, who is qualified as a candidate. Um, so there's, there are differences between the states. It is safe to say, though, that if, uh, the justices do uphold, as unlikely as it may seem, if the justices do uphold uh, the Colorado Supreme Court in this matter, um, it will resonate through a number of states. My own state, Connecticut, is considering the question. I think there's probably a dozen states that are actively considering whether the Donald should, in fact, be allowed to continue on the ballot. It's not just the Supreme Court Trump's got to worry about. It's all the other courts he's appearing in. There's quite a few of those keeping him off the hustings. Well, yes, although he's, you know, he's had some interesting news in, in the last week. Uh, first of all, one of the big cases that has been building against him in the Georgia, in the Atlanta, Fulton County uh, prosecutor's office um, for his open attempt to muscle Georgia election officials. Um, that one is in an interesting bit of trouble because it turns out that the 
DA, the district attorney who brought the case, uh, Fonnie Willis, has had the bad judgment to have an extramarital affair uh, with one of her prosecutors. Well, she's not married. He's getting divorced, but had a personal relationship. Um, And, of course, Trump's team is claiming this means there's a hopeless conflict of interest and she should be disqualified. Um, You know, she is... It is now a distraction, and I think one or the other of the two people involved there um, might consider stepping away from the case. It doesn't really touch the substance, but it still could derail that case. And then the the big election interference case in federal court is on hold for now. The judge in that one, Tanya Chutkin, um, postpone the scheduled March trial date because the president, former president, has gone to the Court of Appeals saying, as president, former president, I should be completely immune from criminal prosecution. It's a ridiculous argument. The court is going to rule against him, but the federal appeals court has not yet issued its decision, and the judge says, I can't go until we know this for sure. So that one is now been stalled. Then, of course, we still have the documents case, um, et cetera, all percolating away. I, I, can't, I can't help raising the issue of my uh, one of my all-time favourite guests, E. Jean Carroll. She's won another 83 mil in damages. She has. And I, in fact, I'd forgotten that so much water had gone under the bridge since we last spoke. $83 million, um, which, of course, you can be sure Trump will appeal. But this is actually a quite consequential um, defamation finding. Um, not only the finding itself, but uh, former President Trump's behavior on the final day of the hearing where he stormed out in front of the judge rather than listen to the prosecution's summation um, and where over the last couple of days of the of the trial he repeatedly um, interrupted and had to be told to keep quiet by the judge really did him no favors in the court of public opinion. Um, you know, what the polls suggest is that many voters are still kind of holding out for a conviction. Um, Whether that happens uh, before November, who knows? But we certainly are seeing the the legal waters around former President Trump continuing to remain roiled. Nothing's calming down. And, you know, every time there's another development, then you get some other crazy crackpot paranoid theory coming out there. Now is a whole uh, from from Trump land, a whole new theory that Taylor Swift is going to announce at the Super Bowl that she's supporting Joe Biden and it's all a plot and the fix is in. And this is all just a distraction to get us to not talk <laughs> about uh, E. Jean Carroll, to not talk about um, the Supreme Court, to not talk about everything that's going on. Meanwhile, is President Biden trying to govern? He is 
trying desperately to govern and in particular trying desperately to um, get some money passed for Ukraine and for Israel and at the same time to resolve um, a standoff with Republicans about the border. And here, as so often, we've got Republicans against Republicans. Uh, there's a $118.3 billion emergency security bill that Democrats uh, put out on Sunday in the Senate uh, and which Republicans like Senate, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell support um, which ties funding to uh, for Ukraine and Israel to uh, giving President Biden the power to shut down the Texas-Mexico border if border crossings get too high, over 4,000 a day, I think. But even that um, is not enough for the Republicans in the House who seem as if they're ready to keep the whole thing frozen. So we are headed probably into another couple weeks of fiscal crisis and headed as well into some deep territory around President Biden's hopes to fund Ukraine and hopes to fund Israel. As I was saying in introducing the program, our next chat is about the dangers to journalists and to press freedom. Uh, Trump, of course, has been making some appalling threats about uh, the media during his campaign. Well, that's hardly new, but could press freedom be under unprecedented threat? Oh, I think it is. And I, I think it's it's really important in the U.S. in particular to, to look at two things, which also are echoed worldwide. One is to recognize that assaults on press freedom are not collateral damage to the Trump enterprise. They are actually – assaults on press freedom are the leading edge of Trumpism. The very first time violence like we saw on January 6th was, in, was unleashed by the Trump campaign was back in 2015, in August of 2015, when he had his uh, security squad, his goons, physically assault – uh, a journalist for Univision who was asking tough questions at a press conference, had him physically removed. That was the moment that violence was reintroduced into American presidential politics. And in the years since, we have found at the local level, not just you know big investigative journalists or human rights correspondents or, or anti-Trump personalities, but you know, local reporters covering local school boards, local city councils, local investigative reporters increasingly threatened, having their houses graffitied, local newsrooms seeking safety training to send reporters out just to cover routine bits of business in the community. Um, the, the press freedom climate in the U.S. has never been worse in my lifetime, and it is taking a toll on reporters on the kinds of beats who never would have been thought of as political in the past. And we'll be talking about that issue in our next segment. Bruce, thanks very much for your time. Bruce Shapiro, of course, Director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University and never have journalists faced so much trauma as they do today. Thanks, Bruce. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.